Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's Wednesday, August the 22nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we begin, I want to say a fond farewell to somebody who you'll be familiar with from this podcast. Sarah Barden has been a valued contributor as a member of the political staff for several years now, particularly during the recent Eighth Amendment referendum campaign, but also on many other issues too. Sarah is moving on to pastures new, and we wish her well. But first two events today, we decided that we wanted to take a look at a number of issues which are currently on the political or civic agenda and maybe apply a more historic lens to them. So we were joined by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, and by Irish Times columnist and professor of modern history at UCD, Dermid Ferreter. I asked Fia first of all about a story he had this week about the proposed merger between the SDLP and Fianna Fáil. Yeah, um, there are talks have been ongoing for a couple of weeks and months, I think, between basically Micheál Martin and his close advisors and Colm Eastwood and his close advisors. It's been kept very tight about a merger between the two. It's As you said, it's been long talked about, but there seems to be a real impetus behind it now. Um, Why now? Because the SCLP is really weak at the moment. They are thinking themselves about where they go. They've, they've, had, they've been having this existential discussion for a good while now. Allied to that, you have the backdrop of Brexit, Micheál Martin, thinking about you know, Fianna Fáil rather than just paying lip service to being an all-Ireland political entity to actually becoming one. Um, he has spoken in the past about publishing a white paper on Irish unity and, you know, counteracting the claims of Sinn Féin for an immediate border poll within five or ten years. Um, Martin's view is that you really have to build the blocks towards the Irish unity through cross-border cooperation in terms of health, enterprise, etc. And obviously politics is a natural uh, one of those. So I think in that respect, he is quite serious. He seems to be the most serious of, of recent Fianna Fáil leaders. But Bertie Hearn tried between 07 and 10, but obviously... Cowan took it up too, things got in the way, um, but Micheál Martin has really kind of picked it up and told the Fianna Fáil Ard Corda before the summer that there would be some class of an announcement on Fianna Fáil organising in the north. In September, he didn't mention the SDLP, but it is, people in Fianna Fáil see it basically as a takeover of the SDLP. I think to be nice to the SDLP in official discussions, it's been called a merger, but it's very much been seen as a okay, takeover. And we might tease out what that might actually in, in, entail in a couple of minutes, but first, Dermot, maybe for the benefit of our listeners... Maybe we could consider the SDLP, Social Democratic and Labour Party, what kind of a party it is. I think people just automatically presume it's the kind of party they know now, which is the uh, the the part of Northern nationalism which is against, which was against the armed struggle, the provisional armed struggle. But there's kind of more to it than that, isn't it, in terms of its its origins? Absolutely, and a lot of people will just associate it with John Hume, mm-hmm. and that's been one of the great difficulties of the party um, that a lot of the story of the SDLP is told as the gospel according to John Hume. And of course, John Hume's legacy is towering and his impact was towering uh, within the SDLP. But he didn't become leader until 1979. It was founded in 1970 and Jerry Fitt was the founder. And it was Jerry Fitt who insisted that the Labour title be included uh, in in the party's name. Uh, And he came from a a very different tradition, a working class tradition. And he was a bit sceptical of some of these university educated graduates like Hume and, and Malin 
who were coming out at that time. So you'd had um, you'd had you'd always had a, an Irish Nationalist Party in, in oh, yeah, Northern well, Ireland I mean, representing you know, the, the, yeah. the, the the minority yeah. nationalist population. But in the heat, I suppose, of the troubles in the civil rights yeah. movement in the late sixties this new movement emerged. Yeah, there were, in the mid-60s, Hume and others were getting very critical of the old Nationalist Party. Eddie McAteer, uh, who, who was the leader at that time, um, they were regarded by some of the younger people as being stuck in a time warp, that they didn't really have any uh, solution uh, to the 1960s challenge. Um, and, you know, Hume's argument was that Catholics needed to engage in trying to reach a solution in Northern Ireland, that the Nationalist Party wasn't equipped to do that, which is why they established this party in 1970. Uh, and it was an attempt to try uh, and appeal to a broader base. I mean, the argument always was, we don't want to drive people further into sectarian trenches, so we want to be social democratic, we want to be Labour. Um, but of and, course, and was there it, within it was, that at the start any attempt to appeal to, for example, Protestant working class communities who might, you know, as the Northern Ireland Labour well, Party, was, which is one the, yeah, there was in but theory, it didn't succeed. There was in theory, but I mean, there were an awful lot of tensions, class tensions within uh, the party. It was never a happy family, mm. uh, and that was apparent throughout the 1970s and indeed into the 1980s, where you know John Hume internalised an awful lot, and because of the nature uh, of what he was engaged with, there were an awful lot of trips down to Dublin. One of the main uh, purposes of the SDLP was to get Dublin engaged in the search for a solution to the uh, problem of Northern Ireland. And, and that led to tensions as well. Um, so there have been difficulties there all the time. But I suppose the real irony for the SDLP is that ultimately they were punished for their greatest achievement. You know, if you consider the achievement of the Good Friday Agreement and the dialogue in particular that John Hume spearheaded in the 1980s, they ultimately lost out when it came to the fallout. Um, those who reaped the rewards for the Good Friday Agreement were those who were least involved, really, uh, in um, the uh, the run-up to it and in, in, indeed in the creation of the Good Friday Agreement. And in 2002, the SDLP found itself with Tony Blair in Downing Street and he said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you don't have any guns because all of the focus was on decommissioning and Sinn Féin was getting a heightened profile out of that. Uh, and the SDLP was very much on the margins. So there was a sacrifice. There was a huge sacrifice that was made. And of course, what the party did then you know, there have been six leaders, I think, since uh, John Hume. A lot of them very short-term, obviously. It would be hard pushed to mention them, to, to uh, list them all well, off. Well, they yeah. were panicked, you see, because of the onslaught of Sinn Féin. There was a time when the SDLP could command over 22% of the votes in Northern Ireland. They were the largest party in terms of votes cast. And now they're just a rump. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any way back from them. They even had to sell off headquarters. Mm because they couldn't rely anymore on the money that was coming from their presence in Westminster. So they really have been reduced to a rump. Uh, and the dilemma for Colm Eastwood was whether or not he could forge a new SDLP or whether he had to try and, and, and look at an alternative. And, of course, one of the alternatives could have been, and this was raised periodically, was to throw in their lot with Sinn Féin. Uh, but the argument that Margaret Ritchie, a former leader, would have made was that that would just, again, going back to this question of sectarian divisions, it would just push them further, or Northern Ireland further, into the uh, sectarian trenches. Um, so that was not deemed to be an acceptable solution to the SDLP dilemma. Of course, it ticks certain boxes for Fianna Fáil. Hmm. But does it, I mean, looking at this, it reminds me sometimes, in some ways, of, you know, when a, a failing company, which is only, I know, a fraction of the size of what it was in its heyday, and it gets taken over, it gets gobbled up by somebody else, it's just part of the process of decline and ultimately death, isn't it? Um, well, it's not coming from a position of strength anyway. Like You're, you're, not, you're not coming at, at this as a, a, an equal partner in a merger. You're basically coming with the, the hat out saying, you know, we need to be saved, can, can, can you save us? But I think from a Fianna Fáil perspective, um, there, there are divided views in the party on taking on this endeavour 
very devoid of views at the top of the party as far as I understand about the just the sheer logistics involved of it basically taking over an organisation that's almost a husk as Dermot says of what it was what they would have to do to breed life back into it Do we have any sense of the membership of the party and for example if it were to be subsumed into a larger Fianna Fáil or whatever it is it's going to be called would that have an impact on the internal political dynamics I'm not quite sure of the the actual rank and file membership of the SDLP now but one element of the talks are ongoing at the moment is that you would have people from outside Fianna Fáil and outside the SCLP but identifying with constitutional nationalism brought into this new entity as kind of, you know, greasing the wheels so you wouldn't have as you had when, say, the Labour Party and uh, DL came together to have the, stick, the, the sticks versus us. It would be, there would be a bit in the middle. So there's a bit of that, a bit of that type of thinking going on. Um, but I think from Fianna Fáil view down here, there is a bit of unease about it. And I think the idea of this kind of two-step process that you, the local and European elections next year will be SDLP slash Fianna Fáil to get people used to the idea that there is a coming together so you don't just click your fingers and it happens overnight. And I imagine that would also allow the Fianna Fáil organisation to have a look at the SDLP organisation in real detail and see what they have to do to it and how they have to reinvigorate and, it. And also, like. what kind of a party is it now in 2018, apart from it having shrunk Dermot? You know, that uh, obviously the nationalist vote in, in Northern Ireland is much higher than it was when the SDLP was, was first founded, but um, that Sinn Féin presents itself as a more radical left party. Does that mean that the modern SDLP is closer to what the old Irish Nationalist Party was before all this started? Well, one of the questions for Colin Eastwood when he took over was, what does the Labour part of your title mean anymore? You know, does it have any meaning given that Sinn Féin is insisting that it is representing that element um, and that constituency? Um, an alternative argument that, should, that the SDLP could have made is that, you know, well, Sinn Féin have become part of the establishment in Northern Ireland now. You know, they're champions for a corporation tax of uh, 12.5%. Uh, or corporate tax at 12.5% and, you know, they're, they're masters of fudge and ambiguity. Um, but, you know, that didn't get them uh, very far, partly because the SDLP didn't go into opposition and because of the peculiarities uh, of, of politics in Northern Ireland and because of, of, of the nature of what Northern Ireland was trying to recover from, you know, politics wasn't normal, you know. Uh, so the SDLP didn't really have an opportunity uh, to, to chart its own ground to the same extent that it might have in, in, in different uh, circumstances. It's also a generational issue. You know, Colin Eastwood might have been very young when he took over, but it was an ageing party, you know, mm. and you talk about membership and the profile of the party. Uh, it's an old party. Um, and that is one of Sinn Féin's great advantage, that it mm. really has quite a stranglehold on the younger vote. But isn't this a challenge also for Fianna Fáil? Oh, it is. There's no doubt about it. Even apart from those economic issues, the social issues. One of the ironies, I suppose, of Fianna Fáil uh, moving in that direction at this time is that this is at the same time when Michal Martin is accusing Fianna Gael of being too green uh, when it Mm. comes to Northern Mm. Ireland and when it comes to the question of um, the fallout from Brexit um, and and the issue of the border. Uh, There are certain ironies there. Um, But there are. this is something that could be very, very tricky uh, for Fianna Fáil. What about those kind of social issues? Is the SDLP is you know probably more rural than urban in terms of its 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 demographic right now. As we know, there's substantial there's substantial opposition to the recent amendment in the Fianna Fáil party. Mm. Is there any possibility that this might drive this new amalgamated party more towards a socially conservative rural party position? There is a possibility, but that's the possibility that Fianna Fáil would have even if it didn't merge with the SDLP anyway. That's the decision that they're going to have to make as a party. Um, I think the referendum for the more sensible people within Fianna Fáil was a wake-up call for them. They realised they were so out of step with modern Ireland and I, I would anticipate that you'd see them 
try and come back towards what the centre would be because they so miscalculated this time. So probably probably not. I don't think there would be an effort to bring them back into the, the mainstream, as it were. But I think one thing I'm curious about is is the the kind of effect of Martin's leadership um, on this process. Like I saw, I was reading a paper last night from Stephen Kelly from Liverpool Hope University, mm. I think, who's done a bit of work in this. And he was basically saying that, you know, from De Valera to Lamas to Hawhey to Lynch, none of them really gave a damn about this idea of organising in, in the north. And then Ahern tried it because he thought the issue had been settled. Um, then obviously, again, we said it, events got in the way. But that idea of its place in the political spectrum, I wonder, it's the old Labour Party element of the SDLP, would it sit more comfortably with Martin? Because he's Martin's effect, the Social Democrat, really. Like, that's what he is. Because of the kind of Fianna yeah, Fáil because of the kind of Fianna mm. That is his Fianna Fáil. His Fianna Fáil is a Social Democratic Fianna Fáil. And I wonder, does that sit easier with people in the SDLP who may need convincing? Like I did see in Stephen Kelly's paper last night, there was an interesting quote from around the time Margaret Ritchie was leader, which had said that it was, it was an off-record quote from a senior figure saying the Labour Party may be our sister, sister party, but Fianna Fáil are our brothers. Does the, is the brothership easier mm. now because Martin is more in tune with what their politics are? I'm slightly in, in, intrigued, Sarah, but taking the, the, a much longer historical view that if there was a bit of a revival of the SDLP and they were to get some of those Westminster seats, one or two of those Westminster seats back, which they lost maybe a long shot, you would have the party of De Valera sitting in the House of Commons. Yeah, well, um, the, the question of um, the long view also brings you back to what the original aim of the Fianna Fáil party was when de Valera founded it in 1926. Uh, on top of the list, of course, was yes. Irish unity. Fianna Fáil, the Republican Party, that was its main aim. Uh, that has taken a back seat uh, in, in more recent times, but arguably it was always quite theoretical. Uh, there was a profound partitionist mentality uh, in this state in relation to Northern Ireland. And De Valera was quite frank in admitting that he did not have a solution uh, to uh, the problem of partition. Force was ruled out um, and he didn't have a political solution to it on the basis that this was something that Britain had created and it was up to Britain to solve it. Now, as we've learned in the last couple of decades, it was never as simple as that. And of course, the SJLP was adamant uh, that one of the reasons why they had to come into existence was precisely because that was outdated thinking, that this had to involve the Dublin government, it had to involve London, it had to involve Belfast. And, and they were successful in making that argument. It's their construct. And the you world could we argue, live in now was absolutely, you could argue that John Hume, you know, reconceptualised Irish nationalism uh, and he brought the political establishment in the South on board. But in relation to uh, seats at, at Westminster, de Valera was always pragmatic. You know, whatever about the theoretical attachment that existed there uh, to, uh, to to unity and to the ultimate aim of the Fianna Fáil party, de Valera was always pragmatic. You know, he was willing to admit privately that he would be quite happy to see Ireland rejoin the Commonwealth if it could mean that unity was brought closer or was made more possible. So there was that pragmatic streak in him. There's always been a pragmatic streak uh, in, in Fianna Fáil when it comes to uh, managing these issues. So, uh, you know, it's it's really a challenge for Martin, I suppose, to try uh, and find the right balance. You know, why are they, mm. if they are, why are they going uh, to, to get involved in this initiative? Uh, is it about dusting down? the historic aims of, of, of Fianna Fáil or is it a response to the, the contemporary challenge of Sinn Féin? Because Sinn Féin will no longer be able to insist mm. we are the only party uh, that has a 32-county uh, organisation and a 32-county presence and a 32-county appeal. Uh, given that most of Martin's ire is directed at mm. Sinn Féin rather than the other political parties, there's certainly going to be an attraction perhaps for him in that idea 
of, of, of Fianna Fáil as a 32 county party. But I wouldn't underestimate the challenge. Uh, you know, it's not as, as simple as uh, Fianna Fáil being an experienced mm. uh, organisation with the weight of history behind it, you know, moving north. Uh, and and transforming the political landscape there. It's certainly not going to be as easy as that. They're up against very formidable opponents. Speaking of De Valera, um, he was the only sitting president to actually contest a presidential election in 1966, nearly lost it, much to many people's many people's surprise. He's the framer of the constitution within which that particular electoral contest takes place. We're kind of entering uncharted waters here now this autumn in that we are going to have a presidential contest with a with a sitting president it's not going to follow the same lines as it no, did in 1966. It's, it's, it's not kind of. You know, these are uncharted waters, full stop, because de Valera didn't campaign in 1966 on the grounds that he was above all that. How did he get away as a city? Because he was de Valera and because there was no real uh, appetite uh, for the idea uh, of, of an election campaign in the first place. Um, RTE's attitude that election particularly is they didn't treat it as a campaign they no, just, well, just I mean, wouldn't I mean the argument RTE made uh, was that they had to provide balanced coverage and if that de Valera wasn't campaigning <laughs> well then they couldn't cover the other campaign so Tom O'Higgins actually had a ball uh, he travelled the country uh, with his kids and wife in tow it was described as a very American uh, style campaign uh, he crisscrossed the country receiving very little coverage mm-hmm. or, if any from the national broadcaster but he chimed with the electorate he was able to present himself as a young, dynamic candidate, and he was. He was only 49, which was young uh, in terms of a presidential candidate at that time. Um, and there was also a very strong sense in 1966 uh, that de Valera had been around far too long. You mm. know, I mean, he was very old. Uh, he was nearly blind. He had, of course, been rolled out for the 1966 uh, commemorations, the 50th anniversary of the 1916 rising. Um, but apart from that, um, he was largely invisible. Um, How old so was he? In a way, was he in his eighties um, at that point? He was in his eighties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, he was. By the time he finished his second term, he just managed to win that second term. Uh, he was uh, ninety-one, uh, so he was a very old man. Um, but it was a fascinating campaign because nobody could have predicted that a Fianna Gael candidate uh, w- would do that well. And interestingly, there were those within Fianna Gael who didn't want to get involved in a contest mm. because they felt in, in 1966 in particular that it might reopen old wounds and that it might be a rerun of the Civil War uh, politics. But there were those within Fianna Gael at the same time who uh, thought that this was a glorious opportunity that should not be missed. Uh, and of course, Liam Cosgrave, uh, it's forgotten now, I suppose, was, was a new leader uh, of the party. But they, had, a, they mm. had approached other people. You know, it's interesting. This always happens during presidential campaign. There are loads of names that, bandied, that were bandied about. Ironically, Tom O'Higgins, who became the Fianna Gael candidate, had actually suggested that Sean McBride should be backed by Fianna Gael. And they balked at that idea of, of backing a former chief of staff of the IRA and someone as difficult as Sean McBride. And then the obvious alternative candidate was John A. Costello. You know who had been Taoiseach, who was a very senior and respected figure within Fine Gael. He'd no interest uh, in getting involved, but the margin was so tight. You're only talking about ten thousand votes. Um, it was that tight, and it was a great embarrassment to Fianna Fáil. And they felt during the campaign that things were beginning to get difficult for them. And it was fascinating to see how they began to coarsen the rhetoric. Uh, the idea that, you know, voting against de Valera was profoundly anti-patriotic <laughs> was one of the arguments that they put out. So it really was an interesting campaign, but it didn't receive the coverage it should have. What does history tell us about what might happen over the next three months with this? That it's going to be dirty or could be dirty, that it could be nasty, and that there are so many slips between cup and lip that you can't predict. Uh, presidential elections can throw up all sorts of uh, unexpected occurrences. 
Um, is it because the stakes is, are so low? You know, um, as people say about well, they're not anymore. saving your presence you know, about academic disputes. Yeah, you know? They're not anymore. I don't think the stakes are low anymore. The presidency has been transformed mm. uh, in the last uh, quarter of a century. Um, I mean, it's still the same office constitutionally. Uh, I remember when I was an undergraduate in UCD and we were all cheering for Mary Robinson and Ronan Fanning, who was the senior history professor at that time, uh, said uh, very pompously, what's the point in running for an office that doesn't exist? Because Mary Robinson was promising to a, a new active dynamic presidency. But she was able to create that within the parameters of the Constitution. So the Constitution hasn't changed, but the perception of the office has changed and, and what can be done within the office has changed. Um, so well, I, I think one, a of, one of the things, and, uh, and this I presume is one of the arguments that uh, supporters of Michael D. Higgins are going to make, is that we've had a pretty good run now of three serious public intellectuals, each one with a different sort of vision and perspective on, on contemporary Ireland and where it should be going. And they've sort of given voice to mm. a lot of the changes and the developments uh, that have taken place in this country. N- not many of the current candidates seem to offer that to me. Or am I blinded by the, by the, by the brilliance of Michael T. Higgins' oratory? Well, you know, he, he, he steps up to the plate in terms of what you might look Well, like I saw him down the Galway Arts Festival um, a couple of weeks ago and the theme was housing. And Michael D. Higgins as president does this quite a lot. I mean, he's very erudite. He was back on home turf. This is where he used to give his sociology lectures, you know. He gave an hour-long lecture Mm. in which he weaved through philosophy, sociology, uh, history, psychology. Mm. uh, Very impressive. And then at the end, he said, of course, the Constitution uh, prevents me from engaging uh, in current policy debates. And yet, Mm. he'll then make it quite clear what he feels uh, about housing, you know, without relating it directly to current debates about uh, policy. Um, and he, you know, he's found a way to do that. Now, there are very few heads of state in the world who would be able to get up and give uh, an hour long lecture uh, in that way. So he is, he does have something uh, that few other candidates can have. But there's also the question then of, you know, this, this argument that has come up recently and during the previous campaign, does there need to be somebody who has a business mind in Arsenal, you know this idea that they can be, they can bring a different perspective. Uh, 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 Michael D himself railed against that idea in two thousand and four, actually, when I was going through the cuts in the last year, and when the the question of McAleese's second term was being discussed. Michael D was pushing for the Labour Party nomination. The Labour Party didn't want to nominate him, but I looked back at the records at the time, and he was really stinging in his criticism of McAleese because she was projecting this image that she was almost like a Turing IDA party Ireland, going, in, Ireland in, at the height of the, the, height of the and, and Michael that, yeah. D was disgusted with this and like the, the, the criticism he leveled at her you, you, like that old Michael D has been forgotten in the last seven years Michael D the politician with the sharp elbows the sharp tongue the short fuse that is that has been forgotten by the public at large. And is that one of the potential pitfalls yes. for him when he gets down into the bear pit of yes. this campaign? Yes, can, like, can he withstand the criticism and the scrutiny he's going to be put under? For example, this idea of his expenses has become an issue in the last couple of weeks. You know, the president stayed in a big suite in Geneva. Well, he is the president, so he's not going to stay in an Airbnb. But, like, you know, he's almost damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. If he publishes expenses, then it'll see everybody go, oh, you stayed here when you're at the UN convention in New York. Da, da, da. If he doesn't, he's hiding things. But speaking to somebody close to him last week, I said, well, what's he going to do? You know, has he thought about the latter stages of a campaign when he might have to publish personal details? He might have to discuss his personal life. He might have to go through experience because, oh, he doesn't see it as an issue at all, you know. Yeah. He doesn't think he will have to do this at all. And if he does, it'll be very late in the day. So I, I'm just, the question you would have about 
they say he's ready to plunge himself into a, back, a campaign, but I just wonder, is he? Like, can you imagine a studio, like we have like almost 10. Now, we're in the silly element part of the presidential election where everybody's trying to name for it, but we have 10 people at the moment. You, you're probably going to look at about five or six people, I'd say, sure. in the field. Yeah. How will he react in a broadcast studio? Because they're saying, his people are saying he is going to engage. He's going to be, how is he going to win? It'll be five against one. They'll all be able to get him and needle him and poke him and make sure he explodes. He won't get away with what happened in the last debate. Well, a lot of people say he got an easy, very easy ride last time out. And there are people I've heard, I've heard broadcasters say that privately that they feel he got away with it. Which means, of course, that they might be subjecting him to even exactly. uh, uh, further scrutiny. But it, to go back to the, you know, th- that big question, how do you separate the candidate from the office? You can't take time out from being president. He's still going to be campaigning as a president. How does he manage that? How do you strike the balance? You know, what areas can you stray into? Um, when it comes to the framing of a message for the campaign, you know, he's going to have no shortage of ideas mm. uh, to call on. You know, he's been very strong over the term about insisting that, you know, you can't divorce politics, economy and society. They're all interconnected. And, you know, a lot of his themes have been woven or his speeches have been woven around that idea. Um, but he will want to come up with a new, mm. uh, a new vision or a new message. And yet the campaigns generally are not really about those visions or the message. They're usually about stuff. Uh, that well, is at, the, at the media level, they're very often about digging dirt on exactly, people's personal yeah. lives, aren't they? Yeah. And, and then perhaps, otherwise, there's a lot of kissing babies yeah. or, in Michael yeah. D's case, but even showing in, up in, a crow you know, park. Even in practical terms, if nice you words. have a sitting president who's being supported by the political establishment, who's been supported by the two uh, main political parties and is an independent candidate, um, you know, in relation to how the campaign is funded and how it's run and who's involved in it, um, mm. where does he stand amidst mm. all of that? You know, and, and does it end up just in relation to, to, to Fiek's point there about the, the business issue? Like at least two of the likely candidates come from that sort of background. Sean Gallagher the last time out um, of, you know, my business background will allow me to understand what the country needs. At, you know, well, in, I, in, in, I, I think that's counterproductive. Mm. Uh, I think one of the reasons Michael D. Higgins has been so popular uh, mm. is precisely because he is, has honed a very, very different message, which is completely at odds with that idea that this has to be the primary focus, that it's about Ireland Inc., that it's just about uh, drumming up more business or it's about wealth creation. You know, he aims for a very, very different area. And one of the reasons he's popular is because he can focus on, you know, the downsides to economic expansionism or the victims or those who fall um, between the cracks. Uh, he's, you know, seen as somebody who can be very compassionate uh, in relation to that. So I'm not sure that this this business message... Uh, and I have my doubts as to whether that really is what those <laughs> individuals are about. Mm. You know. What do you think they're about? Well, I mean, why would you want... I mean, if you're a successful businessman, why would you want to be president? You know, I don't... I mean, the, the presidency, uh, is that what the presidency is about? Given everything that has been uh, generated around the presidency over the last 25 years, why would you consider yourself as a successful businessman an ideal president? Surely that's far too narrow mm. a focus. And also there's a, just, there's a not terribly enticing example of that particular, uh, indeed, yes. particular thing. But I just wonder if the time has passed for that argument. Like, bear in mind the last presidential election was Michael D's, although quite subterranean, vision of the presidency versus Sean Gallagher's, which is, I will go out and drum up, drum up jobs for Ireland. That at was a time of high unemployment. At a time of high unemployment, the economy was at a really low ebb and the public went for Michael D. Higgins and now the public 
courses largely on societal issues. So I just wonder, has that message, has, has its time passed? And will Michael D be able to say, look, you know, I spoke for the nation many, many times. I can do it again. And I think, you know, people might be disinclined to listen to, you know, a, a, an IDA roadshow, as we say, Ireland Inc. That, that may have passed. But Michael D, I mean, Dermot's right, isn't he? Mike, Michael D Higgins is going to have to freshen up the message. I think so. Like, some, you know, there were some kind of, like, if you look back, I went through a couple of results recent speeches and it was all about Michael D, typical Michael D language about the European street and public discourse in this age. So I think he needs to sharpen it up and needs to refocus it slightly. But his probably, I think, strongest card is his record during the decade of commemorations. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is his strongest calling card. His personal backstory there and Dermot was talking about lectures Michael D Higgins gave. I think you were actually there that day, Dermot, on stage. I was covering the weekend of Easter weekend uh, 2016 and mm. he gave an hour long lecture in the round room of the mansion house and it was just like you know you to sit back yeah. and uh, uh, almost enjoy it but I think that is the strongest card that he's the next person like, I, in I, his, I know it, the almost by the yeah, way yeah, 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 yeah. he's actually in, had to shorten his speech yeah, since in, he in a situation present. where like you know we're heading into January 2019 it's upon us immediately oh. and you could make the argument there's no time for somebody who doesn't know how to handle sensitive issues. I think that may be his main strength. Isn't it interesting as an extension of that that uh, the question will always, always, always be raised about experience. Now, we are living in an era where there are candidates who can be very successful by identifying themselves as anti-experience and anti-establishment. And I'm not just talking about Trump here, you know. Ireland is a much more stable political entity and a much more conservative political entity, which in a way might actually work to the advantage of Michael D. Higgins. Here is somebody who is very experienced, um, not just as president, you know, but but well before that. Um, and people might put a lot of store in that. Mm. He's still going to have to answer the question as to why he said he would be a one-term president and, and why he changed mm. his mind. I don't imagine that'll be a huge difficulty for him because he'd probably come up with... Uh, um, an answer um, that is, is is quite convincing, um, but you know there there are still going to be questions um, about uh, another seven years. It's a very long term, mm, sure. and we will hear this repeated. I, I I would say during the campaign that seven years is too long, mm. especially when somebody has already been there for seven years. So you know there are going to be uh, challenges and questions from there. But he certainly holds a lot of card cards going into the election. We haven't mentioned Sinn Fein's mm. uh, candidate. Um, and, and you know, who that might be, and most likely and to be Leon Uriada. Well, it looks that way, does it? Yeah. Seems to be that way. That's what everybody's saying. Now we'll be surprised if it, if it isn't, but um, it would seem to be. But they haven't yet decided. They, I think they're due to announce on the 16th of September there thereabouts. Well, well, what I find be. interesting about that, Martin McGuinness, uh, when he was Sinn Fein's candidate in the last election, didn't do as well mm. as Sinn Fein wanted or expected. And one of the tensions that came through during that campaign was the idea of up there mm-hmm. and down here and he articulated that himself and Martin McGuinness would have been a very very popular uh, Sinn Féiner um, so it'll be interesting to see if a Sinn Féin candidate who's not carrying the troubles baggage and who isn't associated uh, with that era if they can do better well, is this sort of, just, if it's a sort of a tribune bearer for the new uh, Mary Lou Macdonald Sinn Féin isn't it? Uh, Southern well, well, this yeah, is it's, a, it's a further opportunity yeah. to rebrand the party and give it a fresh face yeah. and sort yeah. of noise I think that's the whole point but again is, is, is that enough mm. of a reason for Sinn Féin to contest this election campaign, they clearly think it is. And like I, th- I heard talk that they want to go, they want to push on towards thirty percent of the vote. I think that's quite fanciful. I can't see that happening. But I think it's just another 
kind of run out for Mary Lou McDonald's Sinn Féin. Mm-hmm. So, well, they've uh, obviously yeah, they've they've looked at the odds and the, they've they've looked at the, the cost benefit analysis, I suppose yeah. it is from, yeah. from from their point of view. Listen, I want to touch on one other issue before we leave it again through a historical prism. Uh, it's thirty nine years since the last papal visit, which was you the don't first, say. which was the first <laughs> papal visit. I was talking to a colleague who shall remain nameless outside in the newsroom there a few days ago, who was saying it's amazing, it's amazing how much this country has changed when you think of what it was like in nineteen seventy nine. And I'm going, it's not that amazing. It's forty bloody years. That's a long time. It's two generations. People weren't wandering around in 1979 saying, God, it's amazing that it's 40 years since the Battle of Britain, isn't it? Or whatever it might be. Well, to it, be- it, it isn't that amazing. Ireland has become more secular. Ireland's demographics have changed enormously. The country has changed a lot. But that's what happens in 40 years of history. Yes, but the scale of the change has mm-hmm. been so pronounced in what was essentially a Catholic state for a Catholic people that, you know, we have to, you know, acknowledge the inevitability uh, of, of certain changes and, and sh- certain shifts. But when it comes to that level of change and that the scale of transformation, uh, it has been uh, very, isn't, very... Isn't it clear now that 1979 was the end of an era? Well, I mean, I've often uh, made the case that um, the scale of the uh, mobilisation and the response and the movement of people uh, in reaction to the uh, first papal visit was somewhat deceptive. Because one of the reasons why Pope John Paul II was invited here in the first place was to shore up support for a church that was considered to be under threat. Look at all the speeches that he made, because people don't do this anymore. You know, they just think of the images uh, and they hear the words, you know, young people of Ireland, I love you. Look at what he was saying in his messages. You know, the alien gospels that he referred to. Uh, are the alien influences, the permissive society, a secular society, the embrace of materialism. This was also an era of great debate about contraception. Um, And, you know, those impulses continued and those developments uh, continued. And one of the the messages coming out of the message in 1979, because he talked to the bishops behind the scenes as well, was that you have to become more socially radical uh, and make yourselves more relevant. Uh, So he was throwing down the gauntlet uh, to the bishops at that time. Um, and whether or not they were up to the task, of course, <laughs> mm-hmm. is something uh, that's become very relevant to contemporary debate. Um, so, yes, there were signs there in 1979 uh, that the church was going to face increasing challenges, and it did. Uh, but I think the 1979 visit was also about a reward, in a sense. This was Ireland's reward for having been the shining jewel. In spite of dungeon, fire and sword. Yeah, the shining jewel in the international crown of Catholicism uh, over so many decades, you know, uh, ever faithful in the faith, you know, semper fidelis. That was the message of the Pope in 1979 and that was his parting uh, message. Um, And it wasn't a message that was ultimately listened to. So it was part reward, it was part nostalgia um, and it was also, I suppose, about a recognition that civil and state Civil society and state was going in a different direction. 1979 was also the year of the first uh, family planning uh, legislation. There was something of a backlash in the 1980s. Conservative Catholics did get something of a lift out of the papal visit. But again, those victories in the 1980s, if you consider the referenda, um, arguably they were Pyrrhic victories. Um, And, you know, the the changes and that, that onslaught. Uh, of modernism or secularism did continue. But at the same time, let's not exaggerate it. Is this a post-Catholic pluralist republic? Hardly. You know, but what has been very notable in recent times is that um, the practice of religion is just at such a lower scale than it was. 
And of course, as you said at the outset, well, why wouldn't it be? But given that Ireland's um, practice of Catholicism, it's reckoned at the time of the last visit over 90% of Irish Catholics were attending Mass uh, every week. In certain parts of Dublin now, it's at about 13 or 14%, you know. It's very high level uh, to, to, to come from, obviously. Sure. If, I mean, obviously, it's a significant symbolic event. Does it have political or civic ramifications beyond the event itself that happens I, at the weekend? I don't think so. Um, like, obviously, the Taoiseach has a very fine balancing act to play in what he says to the Pope and the private audience, what he tells the public afterwards he told the Pope, and bearing or giving the Pope due respect. Like, he'll have to speak... He'll have to speak for the abuse victims we've seen in recent weeks. People have concerns about the church now. That's the only political element I can see of it, whether Leo Varadkar is deemed so to have no been... Back, there's no backwash from the fact that, that the Taoiseach led a very successful campaign to remove the most significant element of the Constitution which hewed to a Catholic theology. Well, where is the backwash in that, like, you know... Well, like the people who the people who have turned away from Leo Varadkar for doing that aren't going, their mind isn't going to change by what he does over the next three or four or five days. Same with Michal Martin, their minds aren't going to change because they're very respectful for the Pope. Like I think there's no political. Like we've seen a bit of murmuring in recent days from the few politicians in Leinster House who would still speak to that conservative Catholic Ireland, like you know. Matty McGrath, Ronan Mullen saying Mary McAleese is being disrespectful. People are going OTT in their criticism, but like you even see, for example. The mainstream, I was struck by Michael Creed's comments at Bail and the Blah last Sunday, which said, I am a practice, they almost have to say, I am a practicing Catholic, but I agree with Mary McAleese. I agree that she's taken on the Vatican, but the Pope should be still given a cave mean of falcia. <laughs> like, that's where mainstream political Catholicism that's is now. That's, that's fine for both, uh, both those individuals who are practicing Catholics in their, in their own so, somewhat different ways. I'm not a practicing Catholic, uh, and I've never been. Um, why? How should I think about this event as an Irish citizen? You don't have to think about it at all. Uh, and that, uh, and that, in it, that in itself is a measure, I suppose, of the change. Mm. Um, you certainly couldn't get away from it in, in 1979. Mm. 1979 was regarded as a national celebration. You know, there were those who were disaffected, but they weren't heard. And, the, you know, the, there weren't organised protests in, in, in the sense that there will be now. You don't have to think about it at all. Uh, it's not politically charged, you know. And the reason it is charged is because of this international mm. scandal and the enormity of the scandal around the Catholic Church uh, internationally in relation to child abuse. Uh, the details that were coming out of Pennsylvania were staggering. It's very interesting that the Pope has, has, has issued this statement in the uh, run-up uh, to the uh, visit and the uh, papal apology uh, and the quite cynical reaction to it because we've been listening mm. to statements and apologies for over a quarter of a century now. And, of course, people are asking, well, you know, where are the concrete proposals? Um, so, you know, that in itself tells you uh, about the state that the uh, church is in at the moment. Archbishop Eamon Martin has also been quite vocal about the idea of, of Catholics in Ireland getting used to being a minority mm. voice. You know, not on paper. 78.3% of, of those who filled out the census in 2016 You were still, calling them all hypocrites in the paper take, last Saturday. <laughs> I didn't call them all uh, hypocrites. <laughs> yeah, um, them, um, well, I mean, that, that's an issue, I suppose, about how people use the church now. Uh, but it, it, it's also related, of course, to the church's ongoing control and patronage of education in particular. A lot of people who don't practice their faith are very comfortable uh, with the idea of their children attending faith schools or faith-based schools. Uh, people com compartmentalise. A lot of it is pragmatism. I would argue a lot of it is hypocri hypocritical also. Um, but, you know, there is that uh, sense of inheritance 
people are happy with aspects of that inheritance. There's a degree of nostalgia attached to it also. But in fairness to Dermot Martin, uh, as Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, he's been talking about this for a long time by saying the church is willing to divest. You know, the church is willing to acknowledge that we need a more diverse model of education and schooling. There hasn't been much uptake. And even ministers for education, including Rory Quinn and the current minister, who've been keen uh, to move in that direction, you know, they've also been struck, I think, uh, by the extent to which there's a reluctance to transform. And that's uh, in a reluctance those areas. Th- among the electorate, not just yeah, among I think the establishment. As far as memory yeah. serves, I think there was almost informal... Um, referendums done in, in various communities about this and they were kind of astonished that you know yeah. they, there wasn't a, a rush to uh, reclaim the schools and the education system from the church that they were surprised that people actually quite liked it the way it was I think that when this Rory Quinn came in that was a big idea of his and it stalled because of the public apathy towards such a move We shall leave it there Dermot and Fiat, thanks very much for joining us and that's it for this edition of Inside Politics thanks very much to Fia Kelly and Dermot Ferreter for coming in to us today thanks also to our producer Jennifer Ryan and engineer JJ Vernon remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts and your views are extremely welcome you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter but until the next time goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.